0: Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. Cabin fever has started to set in as we spill over into the second half of the lockdown. Every day is Groundhog Day. You thought this would be the opportunity to write the great South African novel, but instead you spend hours reading COVID-19 worst case scenarios, taking your temperature every seven minutes and fixating on the rising number of worldwide infections. We're traveling into the heart of the lockdown to bring you I'm a Booker Booker, The Quarantine Chronicles, a short and sweet distraction from the pandemic because what you need to do right now is relax, stay at home and avoid the coronavirus like the plague. Authors Locked Down, T-minus 2 Lauren
1: Buchus's mind must be one hell of a place to live. She crisscrosses literary genres to write groundbreaking, weird and wonderful dystopian thrillers. I mean, who will ever forget the body of a half-boy, half-deer fused together in broken monsters? Her novels, Moxie Land, Zoo City, The Shining Girls, Broken Monsters... Are beautifully written with complex characters and intriguing pulse racing plots and plots within plots that are skillfully knitted together. In addition to writing novels, Lauren writes comics and screenplays, has worked as a journalist, directed the fabulous documentary Glitter Boys and Ganglands, and wrote the New York Times' best selling graphic novel, Ferris, The Hidden Kingdom. Academics study her work. Fans name their pets, businesses, and even their children after her characters. And she has won prestigious literary honors like the Arthur C. Clarke Award. She has agents and endorsements from Stephen King, shout outs from George R.R. R. Martin, and big ups from Neil Gaiman. Lauren is a Trevor Noah of the literary, horror, sci-fi, spec-fic, cyberpunk, fantasy, psych-thriller, dystopian world. And now Afterland. Her spanking new novel about a global pandemic has come out slap bang in the middle of a global pandemic. In a future where most men in the world have been killed by a cancer-causing virus, Cole and her 12-year-old son Miles are on the run from the most dangerous person she knows, her sister. Welcome to Amabuka Booker, Booker, Lauren. Can you please read an extract from Afterland?
2: Thank you so much, John. I will. Um, June 21st, 2023. Naming rights. Look at me. Hey. Checking Miles's pupils, which is still huge. Shock and fear and the drugs working their way out of his system. Scrambling to remember her first aid training. Checklist as life boy. He's able to focus, to speak without slurring. He was groggy in the car getting away, but soon he'll be capable of asking difficult questions she is not ready to answer. About the blood on her shirt, for example. Hey, she says again keeping her voice as even as she can. But she's shaky too with the come down of adrenaline. Seeing Billy hauling his body like a broken punching bag, thinking he was dead. But he's not. He's alive. Her son is alive and she needs to hold it together. It's going to be all right, she says. I love you. Love you too, he manages. An automatic call and response like an invocation in church. Except their cathedral is an abandoned gas station restroom where the rows of empty stalls gape like broken teeth in the pre-dawn light. Toilet seats long since wrenched off by vandals. Miles is still shaking, his thin arms wrapped around his ribcage, shoulders hunched, teeth clicking like castanets, and his eyes keep jerking back to the door which has been kicked in before this, judging by the scuffs and dents in the plywood. She too is expecting that door to bust open. It feels inevitable that they will be found and dragged back She'll be arrested. Miles will be taken away. In America, they steal kids from their parents. This was true even before all this.
1: Let's travel back in time to 2004, when your very first book, "Maverick: Extraordinary Woman from South Africa's Past," was published. Maverick is a collection that was of biographies. It's a long time ago, and it's a it's a collection of biographies of powerful South African women who overcame hardship and tragedy women like Ruth First, Brenda Farsi, Dolly Retebe. The research seems to have been a very good grounding for a lot of your fiction.
2: Yeah, it absolutely has been. Um, I think that directly fed into The Shining Girls, which are a number of short biographies of women who are fictional women who are killed by a time-traveling serial killer. But I think kind of digging deep into real people's lives gave me an understanding for the complexities of people um, and the nuance and the contradictions. And that's really helped my fiction work. Um, but also just kind of looking at how wo- women struggle and struggle in particular in a different way to men. Uh, and by the term woman, I'm using that in the most intersectional way possible to include women of color and queer women and transgender women.
1: You, you wrote Moxieland in 2008, which was set in a futuristic Cape Town. It was set in 2018 Cape Town. How much of That's what you right. wrote has sort of came true?
2: Um, well, there's stuff I wish I'd patented. Um,
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was interesting because I, I had an activist uh, do a review about it recently, a couple of years ago, and they were saying that the one thing I got really wrong was how activist culture actually works. And you can tell that this book was written pre um, when people were really mobilizing and working together and... Um, that there were communities and in in the book what happens is an activist kind of gets shanghaied by someone pretending to be a fellow activist which is a minus spoiler um and the person writing this review was like well that wouldn't happen now because you'd have so many checks and balances you'd have so many people who'd be able to like kind of riff off that but of course that was very much inspired by what happened in south africa under apartheid where we did have um embedded spies and askaris who were people kind of pretending to be activists pretending to be on your side so I think Moxie is very much kind of a, you know, a neo-apartheid book.
1: Shining Girls was a time-jumping thrill ride through the past, and Afterland is a journey through the future. How did you imagine this new, changed world?
2: Afterland was really fun to imagine before we found ourselves in an actual pandemic. Um, it, it happens, it's said three years after a pandemic, which has killed all the men in the world, or most of the men in the world, uh, it was, I designed a virus that was specifically an oncovirus that would attack prostates. So, unfortunately, that does mean some trans women have died as well. And yeah, it, it was really interesting to imagine what a world of only women would look like. And of course, there's been a long history of kind of fiction from her land to why the last man um, to some really kind of old stuff, which happened in like the 1900s, imagining kind of this utopian or new society that's all woman. But for, what, for me, what was really interesting with exploring this was people's ideas of what that would look like and the fact that we would all be kumbaya and making friendship bracelets and having communal gardens. And I'm like, have you, have you met women? Like, do you understand what women are like, that we're actually fully human as well? And I wanted to set it kind of only three years away from now so that the power structures are still in place. The patriarchy is a very comfortable pair of shoes that you can just slip into um, because it works. Uh, and it has worked for millennia. And it was interesting to kind of play with those ideas and the, and the fact that women can be violent and venal and greedy and selfish and evil um, and plot against each other. And the bad guy in the book is actually Cole's sister, um, who is the person she should be able to trust, but is kind of selling them out to boy traffickers uh, to make a buck. And it's just really interesting to to play with all these kind of aspects of of a world of women, It was interesting when I was, um, because I asked a lot of people about this, you know, whenever I met people over the few years, I was writing the book, I would talk to them about, well, what would happen in your sector, whether that was mining or economics or programming, if all the men suddenly disappeared. And there were some interesting things which came up. For example, um, a lot of a number of the Middle East countries, including Egypt um, and Qatar, have more female coders and programmers than they have male programmers and coders. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. I imagine that would lead to some very interesting geopolitical stuff where perhaps the U.S., which has a shortage of female programmers, might try and lure people over. But it was also interesting talking to, I, went, I did some ride-alongs with uh, the Cape Town Metro Police. For a project that I was doing at the time. And I asked these two cops that I was hanging out with, like, what would happen, you know, if all the men disappeared? And I'm like, what would happen to crime and gangsterism and drugs? And they laughed at me. Um, they said, well, it would just continue. What are you talking about? Um, and actually, the, there's a Cape Town gang. It's not the worst gang, um, but they have been in the papers before. They were called the Americans. And, um, the cops said that when Mama American ran the gang, it was more ruthless and more violent than it's ever been in its, in its whole history. And actually the gang calmed down a lot after she appointed her son-in-law to run it. And that's because often women have more to prove. And I think we see this in narco trafficking as well. When you have a new gang kind of moving in, they've got to prove that they're more violent, that they're more ruthless, that they're willing to go further. So that was something I wanted to play with in the book as well. Um, that of course there, you know, there's a huge reduction in crime and violence and, and rape in particular but also the world of women is not necessarily a nicer place. We,
1: we are in this position where now, you know, in this pandemic that's kind of wreaking havoc, we have to remake a post-pandemic world and we have to start imagining what this world is going to look like. I'm, and I yep. suppose, you know, um, this is what writers have been doing. They've been imagining what worlds can, can be like. And sometimes dystopian science fiction tends to come true, which is quite scary.
2: Absolutely. Um, You know, it's been interesting to see some of the coronavirus headlines um, about how men are worse affected, for example.
1: Yeah, Um, men over 50, I think, are are the most vulnerable group.
2: Absolutely, and partly that's because men don't wash their hands. Please stop that. Please go and wash your hands. <laughs> um, but also because men don't go to the doctor because they, they don't want to seem weak, and they tend to smoke more, and they tend to like you know do more at risk stuff. And also a lot of you know that a pandemic like this can be very bad for women, um, where women are normally kind of play into the role of caretaker, and a lot of women fail to return to work after a pandemic. We saw it with Ebola um, and right. the DRC. And also girls fail to return to school afterwards and it can can actually entrench some hideous things in the world. Including authoritarianism, you know, people are afraid. Um, so they're willing to sacrifice some of their rights and their privacy and all kinds of things. But what I'd like to imagine for South Africa's afterland is that we are able to continue using the community action networks that have sprung up. Um, you know, and a lot of them are run by old old time of anti-apartheid activists yeah. who really know what they're doing and know how to organize. And there've been food parcels going out. Um, People sending people in underprivileged areas, electricity vouchers and, you know, grocery shopping vouchers. And it's really amazing to see people individually step up like that to kind of care for our society. And I hope there's more of that. I also hope that there is more of that we follow Spain's example and we actually introduce a universal basic income um, to take pressure off people. And it would be amazing to see some good come out of this. I don't know if it will, but I am ever hopeful.
1: How do you keep track of, of, the, of your plot? I mean, how much do you control it and how much does it control you?
2: So, you know, there is a subconscious magic which happens when you're writing, where somewhere between the neurons firing in your brain and your fingers hitting the keys, something happens and it goes in a different direction from what you were anticipating. And I think that's very true of most art. Things never come out exactly the way you planned. And sometimes that's more interesting. But I do, I do have a strong sense of my plot and my characters. Um, But sometimes the characters will go off and do their own thing. And actually part of the reason it took Afterland so long for me to write was because I was very resistant to the idea of Billy being the bad guy. And I don't know why I was being stupid. Like I tried to make the bad guy a man for a long time. It was going to be Cole's baby daddy. Who's also a genetic survivor. Um, You know, one of the people who happens to be immune to the virus uh, and he's in hot pursuit of her and Miles. And then I tried to make it the idiot brother and that also didn't make sense. And, <laughs> and Billy, Billy was there waiting and, she, and when I finally got to her, she was like, oh, thank God, you finally turned up. Jeez, lady.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> and she just stepped in and she took over and it was fantastic. And as soon as I started writing her, it just, it just came and it came so much more easily and readily and, and she was really fun to write and she was vicious and, and great and exactly what the story needed. So I think it's also finding a way to get back to kind of your gut instincts. I call it... Uh, You know, when you're wheel spinning on a project and you keep going back and fiddling with stuff as opposed to kind of like going forward, I call it uh, doing donuts on the motorcycle of doubt in the parking lot. And you need to to get off the motorcycle of doubt and you need to stop doing donuts in the parking lot and you need to like get on the open road and drive forward.
1: (laughs) We're about halfway into this extended lockdown. What do you regret not stockpiling?
2: People... (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> my housemate moved out in January, and I sold the house, so I've been like, you know, so I didn't move a new housemate in, and I'm very sad I didn't. It would have been really lovely to have someone else around, um, but of course, you know, I, I was supposed to move out today, actually, um, and that's not going to happen for a few weeks. Oh. But yeah, I think I think I'm very much a social person. I'm very much um, someone who needs other people uh, and an extrovert, and that's been really hard for me. That's been really tough is not being able to see friends and not being able to, you know, just that human contact. I miss shaking hands with people, yeah. you know, just, just that basic acknowledgement of humanity with physical touch. Um,
1: I, I, know, even I, if it's you know, an estate agent. You know, I'm not sure people are going to ever shake hands again. I think that's the, our, the custom.
2: Yeah. And, and also I don't know if we're ever going to, you know, like the thing I'm most looking forward to is like seeing my friends in person and like, I want to give them a hug, but we might not be able to hug people for a while either. Yeah. Uh, you know, a very good friend of mine has pneumonia, which might be COVID. And, she, you know, she can't get out for testing and she's at such high risk. She's going to have to self-isolate probably till September. And, and it's just devastating. It's, and, and I'm so sad and angry and scared for all of us from, you know, from the wealthy to like the, the people who are in the most desperate need, who are really struggling for food, who don't have jobs, who don't have shelter. It's a lot.
1: What is the first sentence of the book about this pandemic?
2: Uh, The one I read to (laughs) you, (laughs) so. Hey, look at me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) When can we expect your next book? I know you've just launched uh, Afterland, but um, I'm asking... Wow,
2: Jonathan, no
1: pressure. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, um, I do want to know how has the pandemic affected the marketing of this book because it has come out all these events literary events have been cancelled launches have been cancelled yet a, you a virtual launch but what impact has, has that had on on how you marketing after launch? well
2: i mean the south africans actually decided to bring the ebook publication forward um because it's so very much of the now unfortunately i really wish it wasn't um but I'm really hoping that we're going to be able to have like, you know, paper copies out in the world. The printing presses have shut down. I, I don't know if the independent bookstores are going to survive. Please, after lockdown, please go and support the independent bookstores um, and the South African bookstores and, you know, screw Amazon. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's just, I, I don't know what's going to happen. I know that things are publishing layoffs in New York. And of course, New York has been really hard hit. Um, the book is still planned for the 28th of July. I think everyone's trying to in the US and the 1st of September in the UK. And I think everyone's just trying to continue with business as usual. But I don't know how publishing is going to be affected. And I think I'm very lucky in that my book was already scheduled on the bu- on you know on the books as it were. Um, but I don't know what's going to happen to people who are debut authors. I don't know what the landscape is going to look like in a year's time. I think we'll need books uh, more than ever, um, and TV shows, and you know the arts. And I think that's one of the things this has highlighted is how vital the arts are to the way we live. That's and I and I hope like governments will see that and give us more funding. Um, well not, you know, I, I make a good living from my books, but like give other artists funding. Um, yeah.
1: Oh, on that note, the sound of it's Rorschach
2: I use the sparkle emoji a lot. Um, it's just kind of a nice way of it's and it's more interesting than a smiley face and it kind of implies a bit of delight, I guess. <laughs> how very very much i hated the joker and how cynical and awful and ugly it was and how you know i tried to depict mental illness but it made people with mental illness are usually the victims not the aggressors and the whole message at the end was just disgusting like unlike something like breaking bad where we see walter white getters comeuppance Um, and we see how much suffering he wreaks around him. The Joker was proved to be right in the end. It was such an in-cell fantasy movie. I hated it. When I was growing up, my dad had, don't laugh, a gold mine up in... um,
0: Absolutely. Oh, gosh,
2: where would it be? <laughs> 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 Above Pilgrim's Rest in, in Pumalanga. And, um, you know, it was a tiny, tiny mine. I think there was some gold in there, but it would have been actually impossible to get it out. But it was on this beautiful land near Crustcorp. And there were waterfalls. And we'd, he, my dad taught us to abseil. And we go, like, abseiling down the rocks. Never got, I think, a single nugget out of, of gold out of that mine. But I think you could, people would go panning for gold near the area. But it was just kind of like this crazy place where we could go and visit and just be in nature, abseil down the cliff, swim under the waterfall. Um, it was really amazing. But please, no comparisons to Elon Musk. dad had a <laughs> I recently took my daughter to this amazing game farm up in Limpopo. Um, and she was so freaked out because there were no fences around our camp. And she was really worried about the baboons. But what we actually had to worry about were the elephants. And these three huge bull elephants came into camp the one night, the one afternoon. And they were drinking water out of the pool and stripping the trees. And they actually phoned our, our cottage to say, listen, you can't come out right now because there's an elephant outside. And we saw it go right outside. It was amazing. And as soon as it had gone past, I phoned them to check if it was okay if we came up to the pool. And we were two meters away from elephants and it was just the most incredible experience um and they were so gentle and also terrifying but to be that close to such a a strange alien intelligence was mind-blowing
0: thank you lauren
2: thanks jonathan
0: thank you for listening to Booker Booker, the quarantine chronicles live from the lockdown you can subscribe to I'm a Booker Booker on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a Booker Booker is produced by Jonathan Anser and Dan Dews and brought to you by Books Live in collaboration with Multimedia Live. Authors who would like to be featured, I'm email jonathan.anser at I'm gmail.com. I'm a Booker 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 I'm a booker.